The best treatment that we have actually for depression is electroconvulsion therapy. So shocking people. That's actually a very useful treatment. It's people don't do it all the time because it's kind of an in-depth procedure. But even that is only about 70% effective for depression. And that's the best thing we have. Welcome back to I'm the Villain. So today we're going to be continuing our conversation that we started last week with Justin and Eddie. Um, Justin is a psychiatrist and Eddie is a therapist and they are the co-hosts of the Millennial Mental Health Channel. So if you didn't get to catch up on last week's episode, I would recommend checking that out before listening to this, which is the second half of that conversation. Um, but otherwise, I will just cut to our conversation now. Um, I'm interested to talk about what it's like to be a therapist and like be interacting with friends that might be like going through a tough time. <laughs> like, do you feel like it's hard to kind of draw a line and be mm. like, all right, I can't go like we can't do this all the way. Yeah. Or is it like because I feel like you all like you have the skills. Right. So in yeah. theory, you could probably really, really help your close friends. Right. Yeah. That is a great question. And this gets brought up like on Reddit like every couple months because it's a good question. Like it's a very valid question. I think um, when I first got into grad school and was like dealing with that or like not dealing with that, but like working through different clinical skills, I found myself like, and I was like disappointed that I was not disappointed, but I was like, what am I doing? But like when, when a friend would like vent to me, I would like start asking like open-ended questions and like, what am I doing? Like, this is my friend. Like, I'm not like, they're not going to, I'm not going to charge them a hundred dollars just to talk to them for a little bit. Like I need, <laughs> I need to stop doing that. Um, but for sure in the beginning, it was kind of hard to like shut that off and stop thinking as a therapist. Um, but now as I've done that, like I'm, I've been a therapist for like four years now, almost five years. And I was like, now I can kind of shut it off where it's like, when I leave the office, like that's it. Like I'm not a therapist anymore until I come back tomorrow or Monday or whatever the case may be. Um, but I think when a friend is struggling, I just try to have a an honest conversation of like, what do you think you need? And like, how can I support you? Like, how can I be here for you? Whether that's just listen for a lot of people, it's really cathartic to just have someone to listen that listens to you that you can just vent for 20, 30 minutes straight with no breaks. And you just kind of put it all out there. And for them, it's like, OK, cool. I feel a lot better. But for people who are like having like more serious issues it's for me i just kind of have things in mind is like okay like what kind of like you know phone number can i give them or i've had a lot of people reach out to me and say hey like either myself or a family member or a friend is really struggling with their mental health like can you help find a therapist or can you help them find someone in the area that takes this insurance or that does sliding fee scale or like that can help them out at this time and then I'm like, yeah, of course. Like, and then I just kind of jump at that opportunity and try and help in that way. Um, but I do my best to not do any type of therapeutic things with my friend, mostly because like ethically it's incorrect. But two, it's just I'm I'm off the clock. <laughs> like I'm not like you know I, I I spend so much time and energy for my patients and like making sure that my patients are okay that I don't have much more left for me to do that for somebody else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you need that balance. Like, I love my job. I love what I do. But sometimes if I have certain friends who want to talk about emotions and stuff more, sometimes I'll just be like, dude, let's talk about sports. <laughs> let's talk about something <laughs> else. Like, I just I can't do it. I had a long day yeah. and I enjoy what I do, but I need to be able to turn off um, and not talk about. People's and too, it's it's like if uh, like I wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to, th even if I tried to like be a therapist for a friend, I would have so much more information right off the bat than a therapist would that I would not make very good, like clear cut decisions. I'd be very iffy on like, well, what if I do this? Or what if I do this? Or like, no, they don't need the hospital right now. Like, you know, and I just, I wouldn't think as clearly as I would for a patient or uh, someone in our program if it was a friend. Do you feel like that emotional labor that you because you're in like in a job where it's so explicitly kind of called out and like that's something that is is a very explicit part of what you do that like in your other the other elements of li your life, you're able to really 
kind of identify that a little bit more and like, you know, see that as having value, because I feel like that's something that over the past few years has has just been something that people have been talking about a mm-hmm. lot more of the of like, you know, actually valuing emotional labor and kind of quantifying it in certain ways and like trying to place some value on that in society. Um, and I don't think that was necessarily happening before. And so I'm curious if that like in your interpersonal relationships is something that like plays more of a prominent role. Yeah. I know that personally, like I spend so much time just learning about interaction styles, learning about mental health, learning about, um, you know, projection and different defense mechanisms and communication skills. Like it's hard to not let this stuff sort of sink in. Uh, And I think it has definitely positively impacted my relationships in a lot of ways because you know, I'll try and take my own advice with my own, with my patients. If if I'm talking to my wife and I say, you know, I, and I get this feeling like I, like I'm frustrated and like, I'll, I'll try and approach it as with my, you know, my wise mind using DBT or dialectical behavioral, uh, uh, training skills, uh, so you're trying to use these tactics to communicate effectively and and in a non-confrontational way. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That's one of the things that I'm really one of the things that I felt really drawn to psychiatry is because I've always felt like I've always been weird to where my main goal in life, I felt like, was to mm-hmm. be a dad, to be a mm-hmm. good parent. And I and I knew that a career and a life in psychiatry would teach me the skills that I needed to know to become a good Hmm. parent. So I was always really excited about doing this. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you think you're both, both of you are like, especially empathic or as a psychiatrist or therapist, you need to be especially empathic. And cause I, my perception is that I feel like the types of people who would be drawn to this kind of work would be people who tend to be more empathic, but then like, because of that, it seems like you would maybe also be more likely to be kind of get burnout mm. from doing this kind of work. Yeah. I think like being empathic and expressing empathy is definitely a learned skill. Um, I know when I was again in the beginning of grad school, like I could not wrap my head around what it means to express empathy. And I really actually struggled in the beginning with like basic clinical skills, month one like I had a really hard time when we would do like mock or we would do like role plays and I just like couldn't express empathy correctly and I'm just like I don't know why I I just couldn't get my head around it but then I eventually learned it and I think and after that like everything clicked but I think for sure I have found that like I definitely like when it's like random people or like people on the news or even friends like I'll definitely like just feel more empathic for them But then I think to your point, too, I think it is definitely easier to just like feel burnt out at the end of the day or like I come home and it's like, you know, I've noticed like over the last like year that like my text messages, I used to just like anytime I got a text, I'd respond right away. But now I've noticed like sometimes my text messages will kind of get up there and I'm just there's like a couple of people texting me and I won't respond right away because I'm just tired. Like I just can't like think clearly right now and I just can't like respond with the appropriate type of response just because it, it does get draining but that's why Justin and I talk about it a lot just that's why like self-care is important that's why unplugging for a little bit is so important so that this 20 minute break from you know my phone or whatever will help me out for the rest of the day so that I can respond in the way that I do need to respond and I think uh yeah, empathy is a skill so the more you practice it the better you get at it um and I think a lot of people who are drawn to mental health maybe do have a little bit more of that natural em- empathic uh, personality. But then a lot of times, too, um, like psychiatrists have a higher suicide rate than a lot of other um, specialties of physicians, too. So in a way, it's it's a good thing that they're more empathic. But on the flip side of that, too, it can get them into trouble, too, because they feel so much for their patients and they can be so influenced by the emotions of their patients, too. So kind of a, a double sided coin. Um, is it kind of a. It's also interesting to me because I imagine that there's also this there's kind of a stereotype around therapy and kind of like emotional things as being very gendered. Right. And like, I'm curious if that has been like a salient thing for you as, you know, kind of men who are working in this field, 
Um, I, I don't know if that's actually a correct perception on my part. Is it like are most therapists women or like psychiatrists women? Uh, I don't know about psychiatrists, but at my last clinic, I was like one of three male therapists and we had like 25 female therapists. And then right yeah. now in my clinic, I'm the only male therapist we have other than our supervisor. Um, so I think stereotypically in general, like being a therapist is a very like female dominant, I guess, occupation. Um, mm-hmm. we, we had a, uh, a going away, not really going away. Well, when I quit my last job, um, we were like in my backyard with a couple of my coworkers and my roommate came out and like to say hi to everybody. And like later that night, they're like, you know, I'd always heard that like, therapists in general are women but then i didn't realize it until i came outside to the backyard and you were the only guy in the backyard and i was like yeah i guess that's yeah i don't think about it too much but yeah it is it is a very like it yeah that's the stereotype mm. yeah <laughs> and then for psychiatrists especially child and adolescent psychiatrists it is very female dominated um which is one of the reasons why i really wanted to work with kids too because i feel like there are so many young men who need someone that they can connect with, who need a male figure in their life because they don't have a a solid, strong, smart, empathic or empathetic uh, male figure. And so I wanted to be that for for young kids. Hopefully that was not too arrogant thinking like, oh, I'm going to be the guy who changes the world for these kids. (laughs) Um, So many young men don't have a good role model of how to display their emotions. And I wanted to be that for, for a lot of young people. Is that something people seek out? Do people explicitly, I mean, I don't know if you actually end up knowing Mm -hmm. that, but like, I know for women, there's totally like a thing where you're like, Oh, I want like a, like a woman OBGYN or Mm -hmm. something. Right. Do do you know if like, you know, like the boys or young men that you work with, like explicitly will seek that out? Yeah. Yeah. I've had, um, at my last job I've had, um, teenagers that would come, teenage boys that would come in and say like, um, you know, I'm not going to work with anybody unless it's a male therapist or I'm, you know, I want to work with a male therapist or, you know, I've only worked with female therapists. I want to, we've even had, um, like female teenagers come in and say like, I want to work with a male therapist cause I've only worked with females and I want something different. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I, I'm very big on the idea of like men being able to coach and help other men. So yeah, I definitely see the value in it. Yeah. I, I, and I think that that trend of like a lot of the more kind of empathic like service focused jobs being um, you know majority female occupied I think like, I work in the nonprofit sector and I've definitely mm-hmm. seen that trend right yeah. like I'm very often you know one of like count on one hand number of dudes in the office yeah yeah I think too for me it was important one of my first internship sites in undergrad uh, was for the juvenile department in the county that I worked in and like 90% of the the residents in the program that I was at were all were Mexican and for me like as a Mexican male you know son of two Mexican immigrants it was important to me that like that's when I really started to think like I want to be a therapist is like I need to I want these kids in here to look and see somebody that looks similar to them or similar to their cousin or their uncle, just someone that looks like them that can relate to what kind of things that they go through. Cause that is definitely a huge piece to it that just a lot of people don't think about just like the cultural aspect. I've had, I've had teenagers get brought into my office for an assessment where parents are just like, you know, it's all them. I don't know what to do with them. They don't listen. They don't behave. And, and then the parent leaves for a little bit and it's one-on-one with the, the Mexican boy or the Mexican girl. And we're talking and I'm like, you know, I know I just know you, but I just met you, but I know exactly what's going on. And then I'd tell them what's going on. And then they're like, that's exactly what's happening at home. Like, I just don't know how to tell my mom or dad. And it's like, okay, let's, let's work through this. Let's, you know, let's figure this out together. But I think that was a huge piece for me is trying to make sure that there's kids out there and, and adults now too, that can see someone that's similar to them that they can work through certain issues with. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do you think that it, it's, it's interesting. Cause I think a lot about um, AI and like, you know, 
automating all of our jobs. And like one of the things that like so much of of the jobs that are like closest to being automated are a lot of these jobs that are kind of associated or like male dominated. And so I very much think about like we really need to have a, a cultural norm shift towards like men doing more kind of like emotional labor or like service oriented jobs because that's literally what's going to be left in like the near future mm-hmm. you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah because i don't know do you guys like do you guys have any idea when you think or if you think that, that your job could possibly be automated you know <laughs> i doubt it's something you're, you're worried about in the near term <laughs> uh, i don't i don't know i don't go ahead justin i don't know <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think uh, I think that we will never be out of a job. And once again, that could be, be being arrogant again. But I, I think humans will always want to be able to have that face-to-face contact, someone who will listen. I mean, yes, a robot can be able to say, like, thank you for talking. We'll see you next week. But, like, <laughs> there's something that 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 is inherent in human nature to where we want the attention of other humans. And a lot of times the only place for other people to get that is in like a therapy setting. So I think, yes, uh, this, everything is moving towards automation. And I think there's going to be a major crisis an identity crisis for males, especially because probably the first one on that list is going to be truck drivers, which is one of the biggest jobs for American males in the entire country. And that's just going to go by the wayside. Um, as soon as, you know, and the technology is there, that's the crazy thing. Um, so I think men in this country have to learn and adapt and grow. Um, and you know, why not adapt in a way that allows them to grow as people and be more empathetic, learn how to deal with their emotions and and work in that sector of mental health. Yeah, totally. Um, um, so this is, I think I'm struggling how to phrase this topic so i'll just bring it up and kind of let you all react to it so i think in a in a couple of the episodes that we have had recently we have discussed like what seems to be at least from an you know from someone that's not prescribing the meds like kind of an experimental way of, pre- of prescribing people um medication for you know things like uh, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, whatever, and that like you know it is such on such a case by case basis, and like certain meds work for certain people and don't work for certain people, um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I maybe the question is that I would love to just hear you, Justin and Eddie, if you have input on this, talk about it and like talk about what that process is like for you. Yeah. That's a great question because I know a lot of times for patients, they'll say like, I don't want to be your guinea pig. I don't want to just try a bunch of different things. Just give me the one thing that'll work. Um, But unfortunately, you know, most people don't come with an instruction manual. So it's hard to know which medications work. So from from an academic standpoint, there are definitely first line treatments for most people. So like depression and anxiety get an SSRI, which is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor antidepressant. People with uh, schizophrenia get a second generation antipsychotic. Uh, People with bipolar disorder get the lithium or Depakote, you know, first generation or a, a mood stabilizer. So there there are general guidelines but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of art in in prescribing and a lot of art in psychiatry. Um, we often say that the art of psychopharmacology is being able to hit two birds with one stone. So like, kind of a convoluted sentence there. Sorry, but like, you know, say someone comes in and they're really depressed but they're also not sleeping and have chronic nausea issues. Yeah, you can prescribe them Zofran, Prozac, uh, and Trazodone, three different medications that would hit all of those things. Or you can try and find one medicine that does all three, like Mirtazapine or Remeron. Helps with sleep, helps with depression, and helps with nausea. So a lot of times it's what you're comfortable with, what medications you've used. Um, And there is somewhat of a trial and error element there. You give someone a medicine, they might not like the way it makes them feel. They might have an allergic reaction to it. So you got to try another one. Sometimes doctors are bad at telling patients their thought process. And it kind of seems like a just flying by the seat of my pants sort of thing. But usually there is a pretty logical progression of medications to try. 
Um, and I think one thing that's really exciting about moving into the future of mental health is that we're starting to do more genetic testing for different medications. I don't know if you've heard of gene site testing, but essentially... Essentially, most of your medications in psychiatry are broken down by your liver, uh, and your liver is full of enzymes that break down those medications. Those enzymes, the structure of them and how they actually work, is based on your genetics. So your genetic codes uh, code for those enzymes. So the different enzymes you have can break down medications differently, whether they break them up too fast and get them out of your system so they don't work, or they break them down too slow where they build up in your system and work too much. Um, depends on your genetics. And so gene site testing, this genetic testing, actually tests your genetics and your enzyme genetics in your liver to see which medicines will stay in your system for an appropriate amount of time and be more or less useful for you. So there is more of a scientific strategy like on the forefront, um, but it's still not necessarily worth the time and money it takes to do that testing. It's still more cost effective to just start people on the typical first line treatments at this point. Mm, I see. Yeah, I definitely have a lot of friends who have like, who are so scared of like, you know, going on any type of medication that, you know, any brain related medication. Cause like you hear so many horror stories from people who have had negative reactions to, to medications they've tried in the past. And like, there's also so many people who, who talk about like trying to figure out how to like self-medicate with psychedelics and like microdosing Mm -hmm. and, and shit like that. And like, I'm curious whether you guys have opinions on that because I'm sure that's like, you know, people, a lot of like more mainstream people are starting to talk about that, you know? I think Justin has a lot of great <laughs> opinions on I this. Love and this I topic. think, I love yeah, he really does. <laughs> and I, I, I enjoy hearing, I enjoy hearing Justin talk about it because I feel I feel like I've learned so much from him. So I'm going to stop and I'll let you go, Justin. <laughs> yes, I, I think... So many people are are of the mindset that they don't want to start anything that could potentially alter their mind. And I agree, like in my own personal life and even as a physician, I try and be as minimalist as possible, especially when it comes to medications. But my rule of thumb is like if if your mental health is getting in the way, if it's preventing you from doing the things that you want to do in life, then maybe it's time to think about adding a medication right now. You know, everything in medicine and science is based on evidence and data and meta-analyses, which medications and which treatments have the best evidence and which is going to be the most effective. Right now, our treatments are okay for mental health. They're not great. Like the best treatment that we have actually for depression is electroconvulsion therapy. So shocking people. That's actually a very useful treatment. It's people don't do it all the time because it's kind of an in-depth procedure. But even that is only about 70% effective for depression. And that's the best thing we have. So medications are kind of like 50-50 on whether or not they're actually going to work. And if the first medication doesn't work, it's even less of a chance that the second's going to work. I love the fact that we're trying to find new things um, in in the world of mental health. And um, one of the new things on the horizon that's really exciting is psychedelics and specifically psilocybin therapy. Um, before the government made it a Schedule One back in the 60s, there was pretty decent uh, emerging evidence that's good for depression, anxiety, substance use disorders, things like that. But then the government tied it to the counterculture movement and made sure to ban it completely and say schedule one, meaning no research can even be um, done on this without like explicit uh, consent from the government. Um, but with that said, uh, in the past couple of years, Johns Hopkins has been pr- probably the, the main hospital system doing research on this. And they've shown that psychedelics can, um, the main study that they did was they took uh, people with terminal cancer. And it was a small study, I think less than 20 people. But people with terminal cancer, they gave them psilocybin, a, like a large dose of, not a microdose, but a, a macro dose of psilocybin that caused an actual trip. Um, and then they had a guided um, therapeutic session with a therapist who guided them through, like, you know, a lot of people think like, oh, psilocybin, they're just going to give them a bunch of mushrooms and, and release them into the woods and, and let them go crazy. <laughs> no, it's actually very guided. There's even like specific instructions called flight instructions that show therapy 
therapists how to work people through these these trips. And what it showed was that the people who had done the psilocybin trips had less anxiety, less depression. They had less fear of death. So like there was there was actual specific data saying, oh, this could be useful. There was a follow up study that actually was just released a couple of weeks ago. It was, I think, an N. There's like 27 people involved in the study that showed that there was some evidence that psilocybin can be used for uh, lasting effects of depression. Um, so it's something that is a very nascent uh, area of medicine, of mental health. We need a lot more studies, a lot more evidence, a lot more science to go before we can say like, hey, we should start doing this. But it's cool because it's an old remedy. I mean, people have been eating mushrooms for thousands of years, essentially. Um, and so the the possibility of being able to like go back to our roots and, and find something that works is kind of <laughs> exciting. Um, and it's something that could potentially be cheap and effective too. So I'd say as of now, and, and in terms of the micro dosing stuff, we don't really have any great evidence on that stuff at all yet. Um, we've mostly dealt with um, like the macro dosing, but yes, on the horizon, it is kind of a cool thing. And I think it can be useful in the future. We just need more evidence first. So is it still a schedule one? Like, are they, I mean, why is JG the only, the only place doing this? That's a great question. Um, most places it is still schedule one. Oregon just decriminalized all substances, uh, including uh, psilocybin. So they're probably going to be on the forefront. They're the first and only ones that have done that so far, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, DC just decriminalized mushrooms. Yes, I did see that. DC did decriminalize mushrooms. So, but yeah, in terms of federal guidelines, it is still very much uh, taboo. You can't use it. You can't have it. You can't research it. So, how do you know how they got permission to do that? If it's you know, like why would the government just let <laughs> I them think do it's it? Because <laughs> they had to like specifically apply for permits to be able to do it. Um, hmm. Like most substances, you can you, you can study with like you know a review board and yada yada. But you have to go through a lot of extra steps to do research on Schedule One. That's why we don't know much about marijuana either, is because well, we can't really research it very easily. Yeah. I wonder, <laughs> this is, you all can't answer this, it's just a funny thought that I had. I wonder where you go to get the psilocybin uh, when you're, re- for the when you're research? researching it for research. Yeah, like, <laughs> where, where do you go to get it? Well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> like, you can't just go to a dealer. I think you have to get it from a, a, a supplier that has been certified by the government to make mushrooms for research purposes. Like, it's it's very regulated. That's wild. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I also wonder how they find the people to be yeah. in the studies. Well, I think... Oh, well, you know, I think that, like, specifically in the example that Justin, you just mentioned, I mean, if they have terminal cancer, I feel like they're probably, like, down to try a lot of things to, to see what makes them feel yeah. better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And the interesting thing about psilocybin or magic mushrooms in particular is that it, it's mostly just white people using it and white people who also use a lot of other substances, too, um, in the in like a real world setting. The, so people who use it regularly. So in terms of fighting the cultural stigma in, you know, the Latino or black culture or any, you know, subculture in America, um, it's going to be, it's going to be maybe a little bit hard to convince people like, Hey, this could be a legitimate thing that can help you. Yeah. Is there a, I mean, I know you mentioned before there's kind of this, this almost normative divide between like older psychiatrists and younger psychiatrists, right? Is there kind of a, uh, I assume that there's kind of a divide in the community on this particular issue, but also like just generally, is there um, like when you go and like find some place to work, I would imagine there's there's kind of more old guard kind of places and kind of younger, more progressive places. Um, How much I guess like when you are looking for a place to work, how much is like can can the institution itself kind of define what your approach is, if, if at all, or like, you know, do you have kind of full reign over that? That's a great question. It kind of depends there. It depends, you know, a lot of the newer stuff in psychiatry, like you need um, a lot of equipment. Like if you want to do transcranial magnetic stimulation or electroconvulsion therapy or ketamine treatments or um, like, yeah, you're absolutely right. The technology that's available, the people you're working with, it all can can influence the type of psychiatry you're practicing. Mm-hmm. 
Would you say that, would you characterize, like, how would you characterize the places that you are both working? Are they kind of, like, progressive spaces? Mm. I mean, I assume generally, whatever, like, therapy slash psychiatry is probably, like, generally pretty progressive. But I don't know. I could be wrong about that. Uh, You know, now that you bring it up, hmm. Because I, I guess there are places that do like that we're doing like conversion therapy yes. and shit like that. So like I don't know. Like we don't do that anymore. Thank God. <laughs> right. So like I would imagine those places were probably yeah. more conservative. I'm so, in an academic setting in residency, so a little bit more fresh ideas, a lot more younger people, always trying to like learn about new and and new up and coming treatments and things like that. But, you know, you have your old psychiatrists that every once in a while you work with that are still using drugs that haven't been widely used in, you know, 20, 30 years. Uh, um, so it's, it's really important to maintain your interest in the field and to update your, your practice because sometimes people get caught in their, in their same habits yeah. and they're using these old unsafe medicines that, uh, that, that aren't that effective. Yeah. I work for a... I think it's Catholic, like a Catholic hospital system um, that also like supports practitioners doing research and things like that. So I would like to say it's more on the progressive side, minus the religion part of it. But, I get, you know, I never really thought about it. So now when I walk into work tomorrow, I'm going to try and like look around and just think like, <laughs> how, how progressive are we in here? Because I'm I'm the youngest one here. I don't know. But <laughs> that's yeah. a good question. Um, I don't know if this. Yeah, I don't know if, if this is a, a taboo subject, but I'm interested as you to get your your perspectives as healthcare professionals. Like, what is your opinion on the way that you know the U.S. does like um, healthcare payments, like the insurance industry? How do you feel about univer- <laughs> the money? How do you feel about universal healthcare? Yeah, like tell me about that. I think the system we have now. It, can we cuss on here? I don't want to cuss <laughs> yeah, if we're not allowed yes, to. You I, cuss. Yes. I just think it's like really fucking stupid. Like I just I was telling Justin about this uh, in one of our episodes, and I think I mentioned it right before. But like I had a patient who was like doing really well, has had like a history of just negative treatment episodes, like really bad providers here, not paying attention there, like finally moved from Texas, found a nurse practitioner that listened to them and they put them on this like depression medication called, I don't know if it's just depression, but it's called Rigsalti. Is that what it is, Justin? Right. Right. And they were on this for a while and they said it was the, the best medication that they'd finally gotten. And then one day they went to the Safeway pharmacy and the, the pharmacy tech said, your insurance doesn't cover this anymore. It's $600. Like what, like how did we get to a point to where it was free and now it's not free. And the same thing, same patient we had, their insurance was like very stingy on like, okay, they only have this many days at this level of care. Then after that, they're not authorized anymore. And I just, I learned like through working with this patient, if, if they came in for a day that they weren't authorized for, their insurance did not have a no a no harm clause in their agreement. So basically, if my patient came in on Thursday when they weren't supposed to and they weren't authorized to, they would get a bill for the full day of treatment without realizing that that's what was happening. And they would just have to pay the stupid amount of money that was that they owed, I guess, for the day. And that's just one patient. I mean, there's like so much like Justin knows more like technical and like smart terms smart terms for it but for me it's like so stupid like how why do we have to make this so difficult for for people to get support and then not every insurance covers like there um, yeah i'm just gonna keep rambling <laughs> go ahead Justin. i think the largest <laughs> problem is that our entire system is just built on who's gonna make the most money um and and that's the the thing that really starts to get in the way of people getting the care they need because I mean the the medical industry is a multi trillion dollar business, uh, and and hospitals make a ton of money, insurance companies make a ton of money, doctors make a ton of money, doctors make a lot more in the United States than they do anywhere else in the world really, so there's just kind of greed at every level and you know if if you have a patient that uh, to give you an example if you have a patient that uh, that their insurance doesn't cover something and then they have to cover it or pay for it themselves. And, you know, they'll be like, I had to pay $600 to meet with my doctor for an hour. 
That's insane. I mean, that people cannot afford those prices. So, you know, as selfishly as a physician, you know, I, I I'm going to do okay in in this in this system where doctors make a lot of money. But if I had my choice, I would switch it to a system that was pay, probably a single payer system, um, so where people wouldn't have to sacrifice their mental health because they couldn't afford it. Yeah, why? We recently had on um, a guest, my friend Stray, that has a schizophrenic affective disorder, and he was talking about how he had found this meds these these meds that work really well for him they, it came as like a shot once a month or something like that and he says that like yeah it was very stabilizing he felt good it was working for him and then similar to what eddie what you said he went to go pick up his prescription one day and they they were like yeah your insurance no longer covers the shot if you want the shot it's going to be 1200 bucks a month um or you can switch to pills and he switched to pills, and the pills are really, like, not agreeing with him. Like, it's not, you know, he has even been hospitalized a couple of times since having to switch, um, you know, because because he's had to, you know, navigate this shitty-ass yeah. <laughs> insurance system. It's terrible. It's so, so like, literally putting people in danger, right? It's so hard that you have to, like, and I just got an email the other day about another patient whose insurance covers this many more days at this level of care. And then after that, they either, we can ask for more, but they've already basically decided that the insurance is going to de- deny our claim to ask for more at this level of care. So then you just get people trying to navigate, like, okay, well, what's the least harm i guess like i guess i'll you know be away from program more than i normally am but then what happens when i'm not here and like i don't feel as stabilized yet to like decrease from this level of care it's really shitty to see like patients have to like make that kind of judgment call when they're trying to get the help that they need yeah and like the places like for the people who have the worst problems that's going to be the most like you know like who literally can't function in a workplace and who can't really function in society because of their mental health problems that could hypothetically be fixed by the system they're not going to have the money to pay for the things that they actually need to solve that problem for them so it really seems like a very much outside of capitalism problem like you can't i mean what i don't understand is why aren't there more places obviously you know the uh, to me, the obvious answer is, right, like have the government step in. And it seemed like you were working at a place, right, Eddie, that we like a community yeah. care center that had mm-hmm. that was funded by the state government. And like we should totally have more things like that. But why don't more places offer like sliding scale uh, treatment? I think I think places do like the hospital that I work at has and they made a point to let me know while I was doing orientation that like and maybe there's probably a reason why they try to force it like down my throat but basically like if you can't pay for you know whatever like we will work with you and help figure that out but it's like the there's not there's just not that many places that do it and I think it really just goes again it goes back to the amount of money that can be made and I, I've thought about it too where it's like the clinic that I worked at was such a good example of like what we could be having where it's like basically anybody in the community can come in and if you're on this Oregon health plan which is either Medicaid or Medicare I don't remember which one's which but like it's like the free the state insurance yeah and like all these people are able to get all this support but then I go to this this job that I enjoy very much, but I work now with this hospital system where like I'm seeing a lot of the very, very similar patients where all of their families have money and jobs that provide insurance that lets this kind of stuff be covered when there's a whole group of people out there that just can't get this kind of treatment because it's just not accessible. Well, no, thanks for no. weighing in. I, I was like, I don't know if this is political or not, <laughs> but it is definitely political, up, right? Like, we, we agree with you. <laughs> I was on a neurology rotation my first year of residency, and I had a, a Chinese student with me, uh, and she was saying, like, we were talking about one of our homeless patients, and the, our attending had said, like, oh yeah, well, he's not going to pay, so you know, it doesn't really. Uh, matter, uh, blah, 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 blah. And our, our Chinese student was just like, what do you mean he's not going to pay? We're like, 
well, he's homeless. He doesn't have any insurance. Like, there's no way he can pay for it. And she was just so confused. And she was like, well, then what does the hospital do? And, and we said, well, they eat the cost, which didn't really translate over into you know, her, her understanding of English wasn't great at that point. So she's like, eat the cost. But we had to explain to her that, like, that's a huge piece of a hospital's budget each year just goes to people who aren't able to pay. Um, and she said, like, well, in, in China, you know, in, in China, which has you know, a billion people, they have universal health care. She was like, it makes no sense to me that, I mean, this person, I mean, no one's going to pay for him to be in the hospital. Because like even in China, you know, America has the richest economy in the world and far less people. And we still won't pay for people to have universal health care. Yeah. And what feels perverse about it. I mean, this is something we were talking about on our episode with Shrey is that like we used to fund things like asylums. Right. In like Mm -hmm. pre like 90s or whatever. And now we don't. We just fund like prisons and like it's we like as we become more accepting of things like mental illness, we also become less afraid. And it felt like a lot of that funding was motivated by fear, which is really sad. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But fear also motivated the way we treated. Those totally. I mean, we they were also yeah. terrible, but <laughs> there's got to be somewhere in the middle. <laughs> I don't know how, how true it is, but one of my old coworkers told me, and I, I haven't gotten to go because the one time that I I was in the area, it was COVID, so it was like closed down. But one of my old coworkers, he used to work at the Oregon State Hospital, um, which is like the, the mental health hospital for the state, which is actually where One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was filmed, which is actually a film that I just watched recently that Justin's always told me to watch. But anyway, the, apparently in the historical part where you can like do a tour it talks about how the reason why the state hospital was built in the first place was because families with very mentally ill severe and persistent mental illness in their like family members they used to just take them out into the woods and shoot them so they they decided like we need to do something about this so that's how the state hospital started according to him he could be he could be wrong but that's what i was told that's yeah (laughs) (laughs) psychiatry does not have the most glamorous history in the world and that's something we're actively trying to make up for you know we have horrible track record with the lgbtq plus population horrible track record with the african-american population in in america so i that's one of the things i like about psychiatry is now is that we're trying to make up for our faults in the past but you're absolutely right you know the deinstitutionalization where the federal government pulled out pretty much all of the major funding and pretty much relied on states to do it all on their own totally shifted uh, mental health care in this country and now the prison system is the biggest provider for mental health problems in the country um, which is a horrible statistic that should not happen but so many people in prison are getting mental health care because and they're there because of their mental health so that's Eddie and I are always advocating that we need to start viewing a lot of these issues as mental health problems and not criminal problems yeah. my last question is should everyone go to therapy. This is something that I've heard a lot, right, from people. And I don't know, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know. That's a good question. As someone who personally has never gone to therapy, uh, like that's something that people say to me a lot. <laughs> um, I don't know if the answer is yes, they should all go to therapy, but I think my answer is therapy should be more normalized to the point where it's totally fine if anybody wants to go to therapy like you don't have to go to therapy because like like there's people i mean even when i was went back to go see my therapist it wasn't necessarily because i was struggling with anything it was more that i just felt like i needed somebody to talk to for a little bit so and i I think therapy can be beneficial for anybody even if they don't have like a diagnosed disorder so I've, I'm kind of rambling, but I don't think it's it's I think my answer isn't a yes or no answer. It's more therapy should be normalized enough to the point where if anybody wants to go to therapy, it's totally fine. And there's no issue with it, I think is my answer. And I would say <laughs> my short answer is everyone would benefit from therapy. That's a better one. I think, yep. that, <laughs> <laughs> I think that no matter who you are, what you grew up with. What issues you might have or what diagnoses you might have, every single person could benefit from talking, um, digging through uh, the 
emotional traumas they've been through in their lives, Mm -hmm. trying to learn how their own brain works, what their coping mechanisms are, how to use positive coping mechanisms, and how to become a healthier person and a healthier adult. I think that's a lot of what therapy is. And, you know, the main kind of therapy is that cognitive behavioral therapy. The cognitive piece of that is you're trying to understand how your own brain works, your own cognition. So once you're aware of how it works, then you can start to change how it works and influence it with your thoughts. Um, so yeah, I think everyone could benefit from therapy for sure. Well, I guess if, if you don't have like an acute problem, right? Like any, like you work with like eating disorders, right? If you don't have something like a named thing like that, why would someone want to like change the behavior? There could be things that they like just struggle with, whether it's like communication skills or struggling with um there's people who turn to like marijuana or alcohol or you know nicotine when they're feeling stressed so it's like it might not be to the level of like you are diagnosed with you know cannabis dependence disorder cannabis use disorder but it could be to the point where they want to um try something a little different. Maybe they will still smoke weed when they're feeling stressed or maybe they still will, you know, come home from work on a Friday night and be stressed out and be like, I'm going to drink a couple of beers and like, that's all totally fine. But maybe they want to learn how to do something a little different. It could also just be trying to learn how to improve on skills that you already have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then, sorry, one, one last question. <laughs> corollary to that is what should people look for how do the people find a good therapist right because i hear a lot of people who like go through this long search and they hear so get so many emails being like sorry we're not accepting patients like how do people do that that is that's a hard (laughs) one there's it's not a short answer i will tell you that um there's definitely different ways to do it i think You know, it kind of comes down to if it's going to be like cash pay, if it's going to be, you know, sliding fee, because some therapists don't offer sliding fee. uh, And if it's going to or if it's going to be if you're going to use your insurance for it. So one is kind of determining how are you going to pay for it. Um, After that is trying to determine like what issues or things that you're seeing that you want to work on or improve on. And then after that is trying to just search up kind of who's in your area. A common place to start is psychology today. Um, They have in big like a big search bar at the top this is find a therapist today um if you're insured and your insurance is gonna be able to cover it uh a lot of times it's really easy to not really easy it is easier easier uh to call your insurance and see who's covered because then that way they can give you a list of providers that you can try to connect with um And again, I said it's not a short answer because then there's like the whole list of, okay, now there's 10 people in my area um, and all of them have a bunch of weird letters after their name. So it's like, okay, how do I determine like what does this mean compared to what is this? I know what a PhD is, but what is a PhD doing therapy for? Like what is why does this one have the word intern after the letters and why does this one not? So it's. There is a lot that goes into it, and I know it's not easy, um, but I think the biggest things I would say is determining how you're going to pay for it, determining what you want to work on, and then usually with Psychology Today or through your insurance, finding like a list of providers in your area that works on those, that has expertise in those areas, because people will be from my experience, they will be pretty upfront with like, I don't do eating disorders or I don't do, I'm not good with trauma or I'm not good with, you know, a bunch of different things. So trying to kind of pinpoint those people that do have the expertise in the areas you're trying to improve on. I think the fact that it took so long to describe (laughs) makes it, it just shows you how complicated it is and how needlessly complicated we we wish it was so much easier. It can be intimidating. I mean, I've, like I said, I've had a number of friends reach out to me for themselves or for family members or cared ones that like, how do I find the right therapist? And it's like, it's a little more than just, you know, like a, a one or two step answer. But, you know, that's why I'm more than happy to help people navigate it because I know it's not easy. Like for me, I can go on psychology today and like, you know, pick out things very easily. But for other people, like it's hard. I mean, psychology today can be a very confusing website and just insurance in general can be very confusing, too. Eddie, 
Justin, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate it. I don't, I, you know, I don't know if I've ever like been able to just talk with a therapist before, like in a non therapist <laughs> setting. <laughs> I hope it was enjoyable because um, I know we enjoyed it. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, certainly insightful. Yeah. Um, the question I'm asking everybody during quarantine is how have you all been trying to like stay sane, stay busy, whatever that means to you during this real shitty time. You want to go? Just- <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, one of the things that I always like to tell all my patients is there are four pillars of mental health, uh, uh, or lifestyle changes for mental health. That's diet, exercise, stress tolerance, and sleep. Um, so I try and do all those things. Um, I try to exercise regularly. Um, I'm mostly plant-based, and I do feel like that is probably one of the healthiest diets you can have for your mental health. Um, I value sleep a ton. I try and get a consistent amount of sleep. Uh, and I try to manage stress, which this year I have not done as well of a job <laughs> at or as good of a job. Um, third year is kind of hard for psychiatry residents because you're mostly working in hospitals. But this year it's all outpatient. Um, so it's all clinics, just all day, every day, day in and day out. And that kind of wears on you a little bit. So I had to adjust a little bit with my um, stress uh, and my coping strategies. But um, yeah, trying to maintain those four uh, pillars of lifestyle management. Those are the proven things that actually help. So try and do those. And music. I, I play a lot of guitar. Yeah. And so that's that's my therapist. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Uh, I think for me, it's I've definitely made improvements to like sleep because I know Justin talks about it a lot. And I know for me, that's helped a lot. Um, I think, too, just making connection or continuing strengthening connections with like loved ones whether it's friends or family um i've reconnected with some friends from like high school even middle school over this time period and it's been really like almost inspiring to just see like how much people are still at least in my circle care about one another um it's not the best way to cope but i think now more than ever i've felt more of a um responsibility to really stay committed to my work and committed to helping people that I'm working with, whether it's my own patients or the patients just in the program in general. Um, so I've definitely found myself like committing a lot to work because it's just important to me that they get better during this shitty time. Um, but I think too, just making, just continuing to connect with, uh, and checking in with my family and friends has been helpful. And I think too, just, um, yeah, just, I mean, my girlfriend's been very helpful too, but just like, just just trying to stay connected with, with the people that are important to me, especially now. Cause it's like, this is the first holiday. I'm not going to be home. And this is the first time I've, you know, and I've lived in Oregon now for nine years being from California. So it's just trying to keep those connections strong, even though we can't physically be near each other. Yeah. Amazing. Um, this is your time. Plug your show. <laughs> uh, well, uh, Justin and I have our own podcast uh, called the Millennial Mental Health Channel. Uh, we're available wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the other ones like CastBox. Uh, I'm a licensed therapist. He is a psychiatry resident. We just discuss different topics in the mental health world so if you enjoyed us today feel free to check us out but don't feel the responsibility to do so uh we're on twitter and instagram at millennial mhc uh don't make the mistake that we did when we first had our artwork made where we misspelled millennial uh it's m-i-l-l-e-n-n-i-a-l-m-h-c on all kind of social media platforms dude so related when we made this podcast i did not know how villain was spelled. I'm like, I'm like, like I didn't realize that A was before the I. I was spelling it. I didn't like either. A. And then I was asking Isabel like why I couldn't get into any of our accounts. She's <laughs> like, dude, you are spelling it wrong. Spell- spelling's rough, man. The English language is We're not the easy. Correct generation. The- yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, speaking of that. If you like what you heard today, you can find us at I'm the Villain Pod. That's our Twitter. That's our Instagram. That's our Gmail. Otherwise, bye.